1997, a friend of mine from regional theater told me about an audition. He was excited and wanted me to consider auditioning with him for an independent film. The filming schedule was expected to be three weeks, but could go longer. There was no pay, which between the time off from work, using up vacation time, plus being off from work longer than I had benefit time to cover, this would have been a tough gig, although the producers offered payment on the back end if the film made money. Then the real deal breaker revealed itself. Filming in the woods in Maryland. In the woods. Sleeping in a tent. No facilities. I love the outdoors. I enjoy nature walks, moderate hikes, wildflowers, butterflies, even squirrels. But sleeping in a tent? Survey said, no thank you. This audition notice was for a little found footage film known as the Blair Witch Project. Of course, I kicked myself every day for weeks over not auditioning. Payment on the back end? Considering how well this film did, because it truly was a well-produced, well-written, and well-acted independent movie. It was the little film that could, and it blew up. Who knows if I would have been cast, I look very different than Heather Donahue, so likely I wouldn't have fit the type. But damn, for the Blair Witch, I would have slept on the ground. The Blair Witch budget was just $60,000, and opening weekend on July 18, 1999, even with limited release, that movie made over $1.5 million. The success of The Blair Witch drew every would-be independent filmmaker out of the woodwork. Blaine Norris of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, was just out of high school a few years when The Blair Witch Project hit the big screen. He saw the buzz surrounding that movie when everyone fell for the legend of The Blair Witch, including me, and we thought this might actually be found footage. It took him a few more years to develop a script, and by 2002, Blaine was ready to make his movie. The film was called Through Hike, a ghost story. The only problem was Blaine Norris knew very little about filmmaking. He had a script, but he had no equipment and no crew. He placed an ad in a local paper and auditioned local actors to round out his cast. Lucky for Blaine, his friend Brian Trimble, a co-worker at the insurance company where Blaine Norris worked, happened to have a camera actually had a few cameras, and Brian signed on to the project as director of photography. For weeks, the cast and crew of Through Hike met for rehearsals, some actors left the project and were recast, and although Blaine was a novice, most people attached to the movie felt he had at least the necessary commitment, passion, and maybe a little quirkiness to make his own horror movie. But soon after starting, the project suffered two major blows. The movie's financier pulled out, and Blaine's friend Brian Trimble stepped down as director of photography. No Brian meant no cameras. Brian's health was suffering. Both his doctor and his wife, Randy Trimble, thought it was a bad idea for Brian to camp in the Appalachian woods for a week. And when Blaine asked to borrow Brian's expensive camera equipment, well, Randy wasn't comfortable with that arrangement. Her chagrin over her husband's attachment to Blaine Norris and his film may have cost Randy Trimble her life. What started as fiction turned into real-life horror when Brian arrived home one Friday night in January 2003 and found his wife, Randy Trimble, murdered. This is a tale of betrayal, of two men who spun lies out of fiction to create their own reality, and a mother who somehow had the courage to turn her tragedy into a bright, shining light for victims of domestic violence in her community. This is the story of Randy Trimble. I'm Dina Marie your host on this twisted journey. 
Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly. Philly. Randy Lee Pack and Brian Trimble married on September 9th, 2000. From the photos and videos I've seen online, it looked like a wonderful day. Randy was radiant, her dark eyes sparkling under her veil. She wore a princess ball gown with an enormous skirt, and her husband Brian was quite handsome in his tuxedo with his equally dark hair and dark eyes. As you often see at weddings, friends and family shared congratulatory messages filled with love and best wishes on video during the reception. I know your future is going to be beautiful because the two of you are together. And I know that you are going to be very strong for her. I just can't wait to see your grandchildren and see what your future is going to be like. But I wish you the best. I love you both so much. Randy's mom, Nancy Chavez, seemed happy for her daughter, although she worried about Randy and Brian's future. Before their wedding, Brian was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, also referred to as MS. According to the National MS Society website, Multiple sclerosis causes an immune-mediated process in which the body's immune system reacts abnormally and turns against the central nervous system. MS can affect the brain, the spinal cord, and the optic nerves. People diagnosed with MS can experience numbness, weakness and fatigue, difficult weakness and fatigue, difficulty walking, vision problems, or even more extreme symptoms including difficulty breathing and seizures. Brian Trimble had been sick for a number of months before his diagnosis. His mother took him to doctors, to hospitals, he suffered seizures, and finally, after a spinal scan, they received the diagnosis of MS. This diagnosis didn't deter Randy from marrying Brian. Randy knew there would be obstacles in her and Brian's future, and she knew she would handle those obstacles like she did everything else, with hard work and a smile. She'd been a hardworking, perseverant young woman all her life, Randy earned straight A's in school. She was active in theater and played in her high school band, eventually earning the role of drum major. She earned a full scholarship to graduate school and had a bachelor's and master's degree in speech and language pathology. She bought her own home by the time she was 25. Brian Trimble, well, he was a bit more scattered. Brian first studied engineering, then he switched to teaching, thinking he wanted to become a teacher. For a time, he considered enlisting in the armed forces where Randy Trimble was driven and focused. Brian was uncertain, almost distracted when it came to his future. Randy and Brian lived in her modest home on Wood Street in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Camp Hill sits in Cumberland County, just a few minutes from our state capital in Harrisburg, and about an hour and a half to two hours west of Philadelphia. Randy worked at the nearby Hershey Medical Center as a speech and language pathologist. Her husband, Brian, worked at a local insurance company. Between both their jobs and Randy's house and a nice neighborhood, they were well-positioned to start a family, something Randy Trimble had been trying for since her wedding, according to her mother, Nancy Chavez. In the summer of 2002, just a little less than two years after Randy and Brian married, a creative opportunity presented itself to Brian Trimble. Trimble's friend Blaine Norris had an idea to make an independent horror movie. He took inspiration from The Blair Witch Project. He'd film in the woods of Cumberland County along the Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania 
and create a ghost story of his own, something that he believed would put rural Pennsylvania on the map. The only problem was he had no experience as a filmmaker, nor did he have any equipment to make a movie. That wasn't a problem for long, though, because Brian Trimble had camera equipment. He had exactly what Blaine needed to create a film. Plus, Blaine had friends in audio engineering and sound design. Between Blaine Norris and Brian Trimble, they had enough friends, or friends of friends, to get them what they needed for Blaine's film. Randy Trimble's mother, Nancy Chavez, remembered something else about Blaine's request for Brian to work on Thru-Hike, and that was a loan. Initially, Blaine Norris asked people associated with his movie to donate $5,000 each. He didn't have any money to fund the movie, so he relied on other people to finance his project. Blaine made about $60,000 a year working for a large insurance company in IT, which wasn't a bad salary. But he was married, he and his wife just had a baby, and if you've ever been a new parent, you know that money for extras usually gets set aside for doctor visits, diapers, clothes, whatever you need for the baby. That request for $5,000 left a bad taste in Randy Trimble's mouth. She didn't appreciate her husband being expected to help fund the movie. Plus, she and Brian were newlyweds. They were trying to start a family of their own. Five grand for a friend's indie film just wasn't a good investment. Then Brian Trimble received word from his doctor. Due to his multiple sclerosis, it wasn't advisable for him to spend five days camping in the mountains. His doctor was concerned the conditions could be detrimental to his health. So Brian was forced to step down as director of photography. This was a significant blow to Blaine. He needed Brian's help, and he was also looking forward to having his buddy, who he called B-Dog, on the set. But as long as he could borrow Brian's camera equipment, at least he'd still be able to make his movie. Camera equipment isn't cheap. I have friends who are videographers and independent filmmakers. Whether they buy their own equipment or hire cameramen, the cameras are usually very high quality and expensive. I can empathize with the position Randy Tremble was in. I was married to a musician, and without fail, we would get calls on a regular basis from his friends asking to borrow guitars, amps, even his sound system. Sometimes the instruments or equipment came back damaged. It was frustrating because it meant more money out of our budget to fix or replace expensive items. So I can understand Randy Trimble's disdain over the idea of her husband lending Blaine Norris his expensive camera equipment. Eventually, Blaine found a way to get what he needed. He put himself in debt doing it, but he got cameras, he replaced the director of photography, and he started filming his movie. Blaine Norris and his crew filmed for about a week. Then he and others had the arduous task of editing, which took months. Blaine worked on the film through the end of 2002 and into the new year in 2003. Soon after filming started, he and his wife separated. She heard rumors he was having an affair with a cast member, and he moved into an apartment with friends who helped with editing and audio engineering. The entire project, from start to finish, seemed to be one dilemma after another, and Randy Trimble was glad her husband had distanced himself from the movie, whether it was his choice or not. But Brian Trimble wasn't happy at all. On the surface, things seemed okay at home, Nothing so significant that Randy thought anything was wrong in her marriage. For Brian, it was much more serious than that. Although he'd left Blaine Norris' film project, Brian and Blaine were still friends, still co-workers, and as friends sometimes do, he vented about his relationship with Randy to Blaine. Brian Trimble looked for opportunities to get out of the house. He wanted to hang out with his friends. Those outings sometimes included playing Dungeons & Dragons with Blaine or other guys who enjoyed role-playing games. On Friday, January 10th, 2003, Brian and Blaine were supposed to get together for a night of Dungeons & Dragons. 
but Brian made other plans. He canceled his night out with Blaine to go to dinner with a buddy. Since Blaine had the night off, he went out too. He went on a dinner date, and the guys made plans for gaming on another night. Brian Trimble arrived home after dinner just before 8.30 p.m. The Christmas lights were still up, pretty typical for early January at many houses where families celebrate Christmas. The outdoor lights were on, and Brian could see the Christmas tree shining in the window. He left for dinner before Randy came home from her job at the medical center, and he purposely left the Christmas lights on for his wife so the house wouldn't be dark when she got home. Brian entered his house and instantly realized something was wrong. The house was trashed. Drawers were hanging open from cabinets, and he could see the interior door to the garage was ajar. He quickly made his way to the garage door, pushed it open, and there on the floor of the garage was his wife, 28-year-old Randy Trimble, lying in a pool of her own blood. There was so much blood that later investigators said if they didn't know the body was female, they wouldn't have been able to tell if it was a man or a woman. Brian Trimble called 911 at 8.29 p.m. He was frantic. He was crying. He told the 911 operator he just got home and his wife was on the floor bleeding really bad. And when the operator asked his wife's age, Brian said, I don't know, she's 27 or 28. The operator asked if she was conscious and Brian said he didn't think so. Within minutes, East Pennsburg police and ambulance arrived at the Trimble house, but there was nothing they could do. Randy Trimble was dead and it was obvious she'd been murdered. The first officers on the scene that night of Randy's murder were Detective Chip Doherty from East Pennsburg Police and Detective Kurt Wagenreiter from the District Attorney's Office. They walked through each room. They saw drawers turned inside out. Closets had been emptied. Mattresses were flipped over. It looked like a robbery, but to the detectives, it looked like a staged robbery. Nothing was missing. Items were thrown about the house, but they hadn't actually been tossed, meaning their contents hadn't been searched for valuables. Someone staged a burglary to hide the fact Randy Trimble wasn't actually killed during a robbery. According to Cumberland County, Pennsylvania coroner Michael Norris, no relation to Brian Trimble's friend Blaine, Randy Trimble was stabbed 27 times. She had defensive wounds. Randy put up a fight. She tried to save herself. She also had petechial hemorrhages from an attempted strangulation. Near her body was an extension cord, which the police thought her killer had used to try and strangle her. But when that didn't work, he used a knife instead. Almost immediately, police considered Brian Trimble a suspect. The crime scene was staged. The murder was overkill, which is often a sign the murderer knew his victim and was taking out anger or frustration. You know the cliche, it's always the husband. Detective Doherty was the first officer to speak with Brian Trimble the night of Randy's murder. The audio from their interview is a little rough, but you can hear their conversation. The detective asked Brian Trimble to describe what he saw when he came home. So it's dark at this time. Do you remember leaving any lights on? Or uh, I left the Christmas lights on for both inside and outside. The she Christmas tree lights, I noticed they're on now. Okay. She lights them. Yeah. And, um... The door to the garage was open, and I turned on the light. There she was. The police were suspicious of Brian Trimble, but he had an airtight alibi. Detectives checked the restaurant where Brian dined earlier that night with a friend. 
Both his friend and the restaurant were able to confirm Brian was there at the time of Randy Trimble's death. So where did that leave them? They continued to question Brian Trimble in the weeks after Randy's murder. He walked them through the crime scene. Where did he go when he first opened the door? What did he see? Did he call out for Randy? Did he expect her to be home? And each time police met with Brian Trimble, his story changed just a bit. When he spoke with Detective Doherty from East Pennsburg Police, Brian Trimble said he didn't go into the garage. He pushed open the door, turned on the light, saw his wife Randy on the floor, and backed up to call 911. But weeks later, after Randy's funeral, Brian was asked to take a different detective through his actions the night of the murder. Detective Les Freeling walked through the Trimble house on Wood Street with Brian. Trimble told Detective Freeling he walked into the house, called out, hello, ran, and there was no answer. Brian said he then noticed the garage door. He told the detective he immediately walked over, pushed open the door, and saw his wife Randy lying on her stomach, face down, with her head closer to the door to the house, and her legs closer to the large garage door. When the detective asked Brian if he was able to see Randy's face, Brian said only part of it. The rest was covered by Randy's hair and blood. Through cries and tears, Brian said he entered the garage, bent down next to his wife, and asked, Randy, are you okay? She didn't answer. Then Brian Trimble said he put his hand on her coat and tried to shake her, but his wife didn't respond. This version of the story had many more details than his original report to Detective Doherty. Maybe Brian remembered more details since the night of Randy's murder. But to forget that you walked in the room where your wife was on the floor and actually touched her to try and wake her up, that just doesn't seem like something you'd forget. It sounds like something Brian Trimble made up and added later on to give his story credibility. The detectives felt certain Brian Trimble had something to do with his wife's death. Maybe he wasn't the one who wielded the knife, but he knew about it. So Pennsburg Police Detective Chris Doherty made a nuisance of himself. To hear him tell the story, which he does in a film called Rough Cut, a documentary film made by local independent filmmakers Sean Gaston and Todd Click about Randy Trimble's murder, Doherty showed up pretty much wherever Brian went. Sometimes he'd find himself in Brian's neighborhood and knock on his door to say, Hey, buddy, how you doing? You holding up okay? The grocery store? Hey, Brian, you shop here too? A restaurant? Why, this is a great place to eat, isn't it, Brian? He wasn't exactly following Brian, but he was sort of following Brian. And by tailing him, it was pretty easy to see Brian Trimble didn't give a shit about his wife's murder. Brian soon moved out of the house he shared with Randy, got his own apartment, started blowing money left and right burning through his and Randy's savings, buying furniture, video game consoles, a stereo, and whining and dining the ladies. Trimble quickly engaged in multiple relationships within a month or so after Randy's death, including what some reported was an affair with his stepsister. Yes, you heard that right, and that's all I'm going to say about that. His behavior wasn't that of a grieving husband. According to Brian Trimble, he and Randy considered divorcing. But according to Randy's mother, Nancy Chavez, that was crap. Randy and Brian were trying to start a family. There is absolutely no way Randy Trimble would have brought a baby into a home with a broken marriage. Nor did Randy Trimble tell her mother she and Brian were having problems. Nancy knew about Brian's friend asking for $5,000 for his movie. She knew about everything else in her daughter's life. 
If the Trimbles were considering divorce, Nancy felt certain Randy would have told her mother. Even their neighbors on Wood Street thought the marriage was a happy one. According to the Cumberland Sentinel newspaper, neighbor Rudolph Singh, who lived just a few doors down the street from the Trimbles, often saw Brian and Randy take walks together throughout the neighborhood holding hands. He said Randy usually sat outside reading a book while Brian mowed the lawn so she could be close to him while he worked on the house. Singh even recalled seeing Brian Trimble in hysterics after finding his wife murdered. The only person who seemed to think there was something wrong with the marriage was Brian Trimble. Detectives believed it was only a matter of time until Brian Trimble spilled what he knew and admitted to whatever role he played in Randy's death. They got permission from the Attorney General's office for wiretaps, and the Insurance Fraud Prevention Authority provided surveillance equipment and helped the state pay for overtime to conduct surveillance and work the investigation as hard as the police possibly could. And let me tell you, these detectives worked their butts off. They put in over 8,500 investigative hours by the time the first suspect was arrested, just a few months after Randy's death. Before that arrest was made, a strange piece of evidence turned up in the form of a letter mailed to a local television station. The author claimed to be Randy Trimble's murderer. He or she signed the letter with the name Trooper. I am Randy Trimble's killer. Since the police haven't talked to me, I know they're barking up the wrong tree. Local bumpkin police dropped the ball on too many cases. I did this to prove that, but they won't find me. I do this for a living. Why frame Cumberland? Too many screw-ups. Why tremble? Old grudge. Why frame a patsy? Call it second place if they can't get me. Proof of knowledge? No forced entry? Extension cord, baked burglary. Wake up, locals. Solve cases. Stop screwing them up. The letter arrived on May 5th, and just a few days later, on May 9th, Detective Freeling asked to meet with Brian Trimble. Trimble agreed, but he had a request of his own. He asked to bring his mother with him. Okay, you're 27 years old, and you want your mom present at your interrogation. But the detective agreed. Detective Freeling planned to go over every inconsistency in Brian's previous interviews. No matter how strongly investigators felt Brian was involved in his wife Randy Trimble's death, they'd been unsuccessful in getting him to crack. Local police, state police, the DA's office, Brian repeatedly said, if I'm not under arrest, then I'm leaving. At the start of this interview, Detective Freeling preempted Brian's usual response by telling him, you're not under arrest and you are free to leave at any time. Then he began his line of questioning. He asked Brian Trimble about each inconsistency in his responses during previous meetings. Bringing his mom to the interrogation may not have been the best idea after all because it was obvious his mother hadn't expected to hear that her son lied to the police. Finally, Brian Trimble asked his mother to leave the room. Once she was gone, Detective Freeling said, you didn't kill your wife, did you, Brian? And Brian said no. Freeling then asked Brian if he'd planned Randy's murder, and Brian said yes. 
Brian Trimble admitted to conspiring to kill his wife and then told Detective Freeling the murderer was his filmmaking co-worker, his Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game buddy, Blaine Norris. Brian was booked, photographed, and fingerprinted. He asked for an attorney, which the police provided, and then told the DA if he didn't pursue the death penalty, Brian would tell him everything. According to Brian Trimble, he and Randy had been fighting for months. Anytime he wanted to go out, she gave him a hard time, and that usually meant he stayed home. Brian said it wasn't just his doctor who advised against camping in the woods to film Blaine's movie. Randy didn't want Brian doing that either, partly because of his health and the toll sleeping outside would take on his body, but also because she didn't like Blaine Norris. She definitely didn't like the idea Blaine asked Brian for $5,000 to help fund his movie, especially when she worked two jobs to help support Brian because of his health issues. As both men and women do sometimes, Brian Trimble turned to his friend Blaine Norris to vent about his marital woes. Brian claimed one night Blaine said, well, you could kill her, and Brian laughed it off. Brian Trimble told police the first time Blaine Norris suggested Brian kill his wife was around the time he wrote the script for Through Hike. A few months later, as Brian grew more and more unhappy, Blaine told Brian he wasn't really kidding when he suggested Brian kill his wife, Randy Trimble. As someone who went through a divorce, I am familiar with conversations with friends about your partner, venting to a trusted friend when you're sad, feeling like you're beat up, but never, ever did any of my friends even jokingly suggest something like Blaine Norris did. That's not something that enters most people's minds when they're counseling a friend about marital trouble. Clearly, Blaine Norris was out of his damn mind, and Brian wasn't too far behind him. Because when Blaine said he wasn't kidding, Brian asked him, what'd you have in mind? Like, hey, want to grab some lunch? Sure. What'd you have in mind? Tacos? Burgers? Murder? Brian Trimble made a deal with Blaine Norris. Blaine was in serious debt. Once his investor withdrew funding for his movie, Blaine accrued close to $20,000 in debt financing the film on his own. In exchange for murdering Randy Trimble, Brian would pay Blaine $20,000. Where would he get this money? From Randy's life insurance policy, which paid out $100,000. Brian Trimble seemed to think murder was less traumatizing than divorce. During his confession, the police claim Brian said he didn't want to hurt Randy by divorcing her, nor did he want to hurt her family. He didn't want her to have to deal with that because he still loved her very much. In the film Rough Cut, The Brutal Murder of Randy Trimble, friends of Blaine Norris mentioned he was suicidal for a time before he was arrested. He told everyone he knew the police were questioning him about Randy's murder, but he was innocent. He had nothing to do with it, and his friends absolutely believed him. They knew he had next to nothing to do with Randy. She didn't like him and didn't want him around Brian Trimble. His friends knew about his alibi the night of Randy's murder. When Cumberland police wanted to take DNA from Blaine, his friends, especially those attached to the film, felt certain Blaine Norris would be vindicated. A blood test would prove beyond a shadow of any doubt Blaine wasn't anywhere near the Trimble household the night Randy was killed. The police worked for months building a case against Blaine Norris, and during that time, his behavior got really strange. 
Besides all the swords and medieval weapons he bought when he separated from his wife and moved in with friends, Blaine went out and bought a bunch of guns. Handguns, rifles, ammunition, camouflage gear. In hindsight, we now know he was panicking as the police got closer to uncovering his role in Randy Trimble's murder. As a result of multiple search warrants, police uncovered a Kmart receipt. Kmart is a big box store if you're not familiar with that brand. At that store, Blaine purchased a box of latex gloves, a hoodie and fleece pants, and a six-inch fillet knife. While the knives in Blaine's apartment didn't fit Randy Trimble's stab wounds, a smaller knife, like this six-inch fillet knife Blaine purchased, definitely would have been a fit. They also found a search history for the website hitman.com where Brian and Blaine reviewed instructions about how to commit a murder, how to hide evidence, and ensure a clean crime scene. Wear a set of clothes over your own clothes. Wear socks over your shoes. Wear gloves on top of gloves, and then burn that second set of clothing. I realize sometimes my browsing history could look a little suspect to law enforcement, but I can't say I've ever researched how to commit a murder and not leave any evidence. Police also discovered letters on Blaine's computer, unsent letters to his parents, his girlfriend, and his wife, telling his family not to believe what the police may say about him. According to detectives in the district attorney's office, Blaine Norris didn't actually deny murdering Randy Trimble, nor did he declare his innocence. It was more like, don't let the police ruin my reputation, which doesn't sound like it was all that great to begin with. Whether these were suicide notes or goodbye letters written in anticipation of his arrest, it's very hard to say. Earlier, I mentioned a documentary film called Rough Cut, made by local Cumberland County filmmakers Sean Gaston and Todd Click about the murder of Randy Trimble. The film debuted at the Allen Theater in Anvil, Pennsylvania on Saturday, July 16, 2005. It featured cast and crew from the movie Through Hike and interviews with more than 40 people connected to Randy or her murder investigation including her mother, Nancy Chavez, Randy's co-workers, the Cumberland County District Attorney, Skip Ebert, detectives from the DA's office. On September 8, 2003, the Patriot News received a letter from Trooper, the same author who'd sent a letter to a local TV station a few months earlier. In this letter, the author mentioned his earlier communication and complained that it wasn't published. So he decided to try another news outlet. This guy was looking for a little fame. Again, he said police were too stupid to catch him, although that was actually stupid on his part because the police were just about ready to make their second arrest. The author used the same words as before, bumpkin cops, quoted proof he was the killer by saying no forced entry, extension cord, fake robbery. By now, you can probably guess who wrote those letters. It was Blaine Norris. While he told his cast and crew finishing the film and creating a rough cut was a waste of time because he thought the police may arrest him for Randy Trimble's murder, he taunted cops, telling the press they'd never catch him. So which one was it, Blaine? Between Brian Trimble's confession implicating Blaine Norris, the receipt for the gloves, a disguise, and a knife, the letters, well, the district attorney felt there was enough evidence against Blaine, and he issued a warrant for Blaine Norris's arrest. When the police showed up at Blaine's apartment to arrest him, he passed out. One of the detectives from the district attorney's office caught Blaine and helped him to the floor. He was afraid if he let Blaine fall, he might injure himself. During the preliminary hearing on September 29th in 2003, Randy's family had to face both Brian Trimble and Blaine Norris. 
According to Randy's uncle, Mike Wilson, after he testified, he requested permission to speak with Brian Trimble. Pathetically, Brian tried to apologize. In Mike's words during an interview with the documentary filmmakers, he told Brian, how do you say you're sorry for killing your wife, for killing Nancy's child? Mike Wilson told Brian Trimble the only thing he could do to help the family is to testify and get Blaine Norris. Make sure that Blaine is held accountable for murdering his niece, Randy Trimble. Cumberland County District Attorney Skip Ebert initially planned to pursue the death penalty in the conviction of 25-year-old Blaine Norris. When Randy Trimble's mother, Nancy Chavez, spoke to filmmakers Todd Click and Sean Gaston, she said she'd have no problem with both Trimble and Norris being put to death. She went so far as to say, shame on me for not being against capital punishment. But she added, people who are not in support of capital punishment don't know how they'll feel when they're faced with this situation, when it's their family member who's been brutally murdered. I appreciated her honesty and vulnerability. It's nice to say no one deserves to die. We don't deserve to stand as judge and jury over someone's life. But unless you're faced with the circumstances which plagued Nancy Chavez, I don't think you can truly know how you would feel in that situation. There was no opportunity for Nancy or anyone else to witness the death of her daughter's killers. Blaine Norris unexpectedly saved everyone the time and effort of a trial by pleading guilty in the death of 28-year-old Randy Trimble. Norris sent multiple letters to the media mocking the police, insulting the police, presenting him as someone smarter and better than the police, although he couldn't spell worth a shit, which was one minor indication who's smarter. He proclaimed his innocence to anyone who would listen. And then suddenly, he caved. Blaine Norris will spend his life in prison without the possibility of parole. He cried when he spoke to Randy Trimble's mother. He said, I wish I could give you more than an apology. I wish I could give you your daughter back. If by forfeiture of my life I could bring her back to you, I'd lay down my life without hesitation. He then told the court, most of you probably despise me. I don't blame you for that. I was utterly despicable and committed some of the worst sins and crimes known to the world. He then told the court he's found God, and God forgives him. The first part of the Bible has that one simple phrase, thou shalt not kill, and he somehow missed that part in the beginning. So he certainly needs as much forgiveness as he can get. Randy Trimble's mother had the last word in court. She said her daughter was murdered by two monsters for greed. I never saw one time that Brian showed anything but love for Randy, and Randy the same, and I know my daughter loved him to the minute she died. That statement Blaine Norris made in court to Nancy Chavez about laying down his life is such a crock of shit. I think Blaine wanted to kill someone. I believe he'd gotten so wrapped up in his fantasy life where he was a big-time movie maker and a horror movie genius. He hated Randy because she interfered with her husband, Brian Trimble, when Brian wanted to be a part of the movie. I believe eventually Blaine would have killed someone, anyone, to show that he was such a big man. He told the court he committed some of the worst crimes in the world. Maybe his movie was shit and wouldn't gotten him the fame and notoriety who so desperately sought. So he found another way to get it by committing an atrocious murder of a thriving young woman. Blaine Norris admitted to police what happened the night Randy Trimble was murdered. 
He hid in waiting for Randy inside the garage. Randy pulled in her SUV, got out of the car, and as she opened the interior garage door that led to the house, Blaine came up behind her and tried to strangle her with an extension cord, but he wasn't able to subdue Randy because she fought back, so instead he used a knife he brought with him. According to detectives, Blaine told police Randy fought. She tried to fight him off. She begged for her life. She offered Blaine money, but it was no use. He was intent on killing Randy Trimble. Randy Trimble did so much for so many, working in the neurorehabilitative department at Hershey Medical Center as a speech and language pathologist. Think of all the people she helped, of all the lives she touched. Randy worked two jobs to build a savings for her future with her husband, Brian, and to help cover his considerable medical bills. She was brutally murdered for being a good person, for being a wife who looked out for the financial safety of her husband and the family she one day hoped to have. I don't know if you ever listened to True Crime Island hosted by my friend Cambo over in Australia, but this is the part in a story where Cambo would bring the rage, and I feel it. I definitely feel it. Brian and Blaine were two complete dumbasses with no regard for anyone. Brian Trimble told the court and police he was fed up with not getting his way, fed up with what he said was Randy putting restrictions on him when he wanted to spend more time out doing whatever it was he wanted to do. Sounds like someone else we recently talked about, Craig Rabinowitz. Granted, Brian didn't blow almost 30 grand on one exotic dancer, but he blew over 20 grand after Stephanie's death. He burned through their savings faster than you could blink an eye, dating different women, outfitting his apartment with the best of everything, all within a month or two after his wife's murder. Yeah, Brian Trimble reminds me a lot of Craig Rabinowitz. And like Craig... Brian Trimble will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Like Stephanie Newman, Randy's grave doesn't read the name Trimble. It reads Randy Peck, her maiden name. Her mother wouldn't use the name Trimble on Randy's grave. It's been 15 years since Nancy Chavez's daughter Randy was murdered. In 2005, Chavez created a charity called Randy's Race, a 5K run which raises awareness about domestic violence and raises money for domestic violence services of Cumberland and Perry counties in Pennsylvania. Join CBS 21 and support Randy's race for hope and courage on Saturday, May 12th. Please join us at the 5K Run and Walk to benefit programs for children who are victims of domestic violence. Raise awareness and advocate for a change. Make a difference with Randy's race. By 2015, Randy's race raised over $320,000 for the DVSCP. This experience gave Nancy the courage to talk about her own experiences with domestic violence during her first marriage. She counsels men and women who are suffering abuse at the hands of their partners. Nancy Chavez served on the Cumberland County Commission for Women and furthered Randy's legacy in 2011 when she started Randy's House of Angels. It's a charity for kids from homes where domestic violence is present. Randy's House of Angels offers a summer camp for kids, counseling and therapy sessions, and even provides funding for children to be able to attend these programs. In a 2015 interview in the Cumberland Sentinel, Chavez said she had to find a way to move forward after her daughter's murder. 
Starting Randy's race and Randy's House of Angels is how she heals. She told a reporter she will never stop missing her daughter, nor will she ever stop doing this work to help children. Nancy Chavez was honored multiple times by Cumberland County for her work fighting domestic violence and providing a safe place for kids. Tonight we have the story of a victim of crime who's fighting back and helping others at the same time. Randy Trimble was murdered seven years ago in her Cumberland County home. Now Randy's mother is helping victims of crime. News 8's Jim Sinkovitz has this story. It was seven years ago that Nancy Chavez lost her 28-year-old daughter, Randy Trimble. It was um, devastating to me because she was my only child, of course, but also just being confronted by so many different individuals of this process. Individuals from law enforcement, the courts, victims, advocates, along with trauma and grief. So Chavez has worked with other crime victims to open a website to assist any victim of crime find help where they need it most such as financial and health cost assistance, counseling and therapy, help understanding the legal process, and much more. What I do is to help other victims, people that are suffering um, and are in a crisis mode as I have been and continue to be. And I think that that's important. Chavez, who is still suffering post-traumatic stress seven years after her daughter's killing, said the website will let crime victims know they are not alone and that help is available and in some cases for as long as they need. It's not a substitute for a victim's advocate, she says, but another important resource to help those whose lives have been changed forever. That's why this site is, is just absolutely wonderful. It meets the needs of victims at any stage of their healing. In Harrisburg, Jim Sinkovitz, News 8. We have set up a link to the crime victim's website on WGAL. In 2013, Nancy Chavez, along with Lynn Schreiner from nearby Lower Paxton Township, whose children were killed by her ex-husband, published a book written by Patriot News columnist Nancy Eshelman called Stabbed in the Heart, the story of three murdered children and two resilient mothers. In this book, Eshelman details Nancy and Lynn's journeys, how they survived the aftermath of their children's murders, how they found a way forward through the pain, how they managed the media and reactions from friends and family. All the proceeds from the book go to charity. If you'd like more information about the book Stabbed in the Heart, go to www.rjdblessings.com. The letters RJD stand for Randy, Nancy's daughter, Jennifer, and David, Lynn's daughter and son, who were just 8 and 10 when they were murdered by their father. In July 2006, Brian Trimble requested a new trial. He claimed he was coerced or compelled to plead guilty. The police interviews were taped, Brian. You weren't coerced into anything. He confessed to his role in conspiring to kill his wife, Randy. He helped Blaine Norris trash the house before Randy came home from work. The only thing he didn't do was actually wield the knife. According to Trimble's court-appointed attorney, Greg Ablin, Brian Trimble said he was misrepresented by his three prior court-appointed attorneys. He also told his attorneys he confessed because investigators showed him two syringes during an interview. They said one has his name on it and the others got the name Blaine Norris, implying he'd get the death penalty. So he confessed to avoid being sentenced to death. That simply didn't happen. Ablin also cited Trimble's suicide attempt while he was in prison. And according to the Cumberland Sentinel News, said Trimble was given medication as a result of that suicide attempt, which he took up until his plea hearing. I think his attorney implied his judgment was impaired. 
and therefore his guilty plea should be thrown out. Later that year, in 2006, Cumberland County Judge Edgar Bailey denied Brian Trimble's appeal because he submitted it after the window of opportunity expired. For his appeal to have been considered, Trimble needed to submit it within one year after his sentencing in May 2004. His appeal was submitted well over a year after that date. Trimble claimed he wrote a letter requesting a new trial and gave it to a prison guard to mail to the court on his behalf, but it never arrived kind of like the dog ate your homework. Although there were very little specifics about when the letter was given to a guard, which guard, which year, I think that's probably a crock of shit too. This was a listener-requested, listener-suggested story. I wasn't at all familiar with Randy's murder, and the more I researched, the more maddening it became. Thinking her husband felt it was easier on Randy to kill her than leave her. Why did Brian Trimble think he was so great that his wife would be better off dead not knowing he wanted a divorce than alive but single? I have no fucking clue. Throughout my research, my mind kept going back to Craig Rabinowitz, another man who thinks entirely too highly of himself, another man that pretended for anyone who was watching to be in love with his beautiful young wife. Stephanie and Randy were so similar to in appearance, they both had dark eyes, fair skin, dark hair. They were both incredibly smart, hardworking, successful women, both wanting a family. Stephanie was a new mom at the time of her death, while Randy was still trying to become a mother, and both got stuck with narcissistic, murdering scumbags for husbands. Besides the information I shared about the website for the book Stabbed in the Heart, if you'd like to find out more about Randy's race or Randy's House of Angels, go to randyshouseofangels.org, and Randy is spelled with an I. You can see pictures from past races, get information about upcoming races, learn about Randy's kids, make a donation, or even sponsor future charity events. I hope you'll take the time to check out the charities started by Randy's incredible mom, Nancy Chavez. That lady has got heart, and she has got balls. God bless her for everything she's endured and everything she does in her daughter's name to help others. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.